Hello, Fry family. It's good to be here with you. Today's a good day. It's a good day for several reasons. Number one, I'm glad to be back with you this morning. Number two, though the introduction was brief, our good friends, the Cothrans and Foresters, for those of you who are newer around here, uh, both of these guys were on staff. They were elders, dear friends, and what a, what a wonderful time it is to, to gather with them. Many of you know them. Feel free to occupy them for a few minutes after the service, and then we need them the rest of the day. And if I may indulge just for a moment of personal praise, today, 29 years ago today, this woman and I took our vows to each other. Second best decision I ever made in my life. And if you don't know what the first one is, well, you can ask me later. <laughs> Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to continue looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, today we will pick up verses 21 through 26. Before we look at Matthew's account, though, I want to start with a passage from another gospel. I'm not going to tell you, Martha, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You'll just have to listen to me. See, I'm up here close to everybody, and I feel like I've got to talk to you personally here. This is one of those passages in the scripture where Jesus and eyes come together. Uh, it grips my, grips my heart every time I read. The other one is when Peter denies Jesus, and the rooster crows, and then it says that Jesus and Peter, they met eyes. And I always just tremble at the thought of what was going through Peter's mind as his Savior looks at him in that moment. But this is another occasion, and it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and it says this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. So he's gathering in a building maybe kind of like this, with a bunch of Jewish brothers and sisters in a room like this, and he is given the scroll, and he stands up to read, and he reads from Isaiah. He opened the book, he found the place where it was written, and this is what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. No, take that down. We're not, I'm not ready for you to put that up yet. So he reads this from Isaiah, and he closed the book. And he gave it to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They did things differently back then. You stand up to read the word of God, and then the teacher sits down, and the congregation stands up. I kind of like that practice, but I won't make you do that this morning. But can you imagine there, Jesus, is, again, it's the beginning of his ministry. He's been teaching He's been healing. Some rumors about this man have been spreading. Who is this guy? What is he doing? And he stands up and he reads from Isaiah 61 and he sits down and every person in the room is staring at him. What's he going to say? And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
he read from a man, a prophet, who had written 600 plus years prior to his coming. And by this time, everybody in Israel knew this was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And Jesus stands at, or sits and stares him in the eyes and says, today, everything you've been longing for, everything you have wanted, what you have been waiting for, no, not what, who you have been waiting for, I am and I'm fulfilling this prophecy. I get chills just thinking about it. Can you imagine being there? All the conversations going on in people's heads and after the service. Like, what can this be? Well, he's quoting from Isaiah 61. And he didn't go as far as I'm going to take you this morning. Now, Sobe, back to verse 1. Here's what he quoted from Isaiah again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon, or Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because this, the Lord has anointed me through the Spirit, to bring good news to the afflicted. Next phrase. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives. Can you imagine how excited they were to think about this? Freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. They didn't quote this next phrase, what Isaiah did, and the day of vengeance of our God. Then he goes on. And hopefully you have some beatitudes in the back of your mind through this. To comfort all who mourn. To grant those who mourn in Zion. Giving them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. He's coming to bring joy and happiness and blessing to the people. Next one. They, those who receive this blessing, will be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified, or another translation is, the planting of the Lord to reveal his splendor. This last phrase I want to draw your attention to as we begin here. Uh, earlier this summer, we were in St. Louis visiting Krista's parents and we were on their back deck and looking at a, a, a large number of trees that were huge, massive trees. But when I joined their family 29 years ago, and they moved into this house, they planted these trees, and they were skinny, they weren't strong, they weren't big trees that, that provided a great deal of shade for others, they were just little twigs in the ground. But over the last 25 years or so, they became Massive, strong, protective trees. Windstorms howl through Missouri, blow those things around, but they are steady. This prophecy predicted that when the Messiah comes, he is going to plant oaks of righteousness. That's us. And that's the church that he's been building for 2,000 years, individually and corporately. We start off as little twigs, little saplings, weak, but he is growing us into strong trees that can provide shade and withstand the storms, oaks of righteousness. And what Jesus does on the Sermon on the Mount, as Dwight introduced us to, is he is showing his disciples what it looks like 
be an oak of righteousness. When Messiah comes and he brings the kingdom of heaven, what are these people going to be like? It's going to be like the people he describes in the Sermon on the Mount. And so he walks through the Beatitudes. Blessed are they who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are peacemakers, and so on. That's us. Oaks of righteousness, in contrast to another standard of righteousness that we talked about last week. Remember what Jesus said? Your righteousness must surpass the Pharisees and the scribes if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Maybe it's lost on us how impacting that statement was. But for these Jews, this was the most shocking thing Jesus could have said. Some of you may have been raised in the Roman Catholic Church or have family members, friends that are raised in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, if you weren't, you probably know at least this much. The Pope is, is the highest ranking official in Roman Catholicism. He is called the Holy Father. He has the title, the Vicar of Christ. The word vicar means substitute. So they regard the Pope as Christ's substitute, his representative on earth. When he speaks on his throne, the cathedral, you know why cathedrals are called cathedrals? is because the throne, the chair that bishops sit on, is in Latin, cathedra. And when the Pope sits on the cathedra at the Vatican and he speaks, Roman Catholic Catholicism considers his words infallible. They cannot err when he speaks. So he is the pinnacle of righteousness. Imagine you were raised in Roman Catholicism and Jesus showed up and said, you have to be more righteous than the Pope to enter the kingdom of heaven. You would be stunned. Wait, you're saying even he's not getting in? I have to be more righteous than him? Everything I've ever been taught is he is the standard. Well, that was the Pharisees. They were the standard of righteousness. And Jesus says, if you're not more righteous than them, you won't even enter into the kingdom. He has come to give us his spirit, his forgiveness, his justifying righteousness, and his sanctifying righteousness so that we become those oaks of righteousness that were predicted centuries prior to his coming. So that we can be more righteous than the Pharisees and enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we're going to continue looking at in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. Verse 21 begins a series of what are called by theologians the antitheses. Because Jesus says over and over again, you have heard, but I say. You've heard this, but I'm going to give you some things antithetical to that, or at least corrective to some of that. And we see a series of these. We're going to go over these in upcoming weeks. Before we get into the heart of it here, I need to draw attention to one more thing. In verse 22, when he says, but I say to you, in the original language, that I is emphatic. I myself, you have heard, someone else has said, the Pharisees have said, ancient teachers have said, they've said these things, maybe even Moses has said, but I say to you. This is significant because he has said in last week's passage, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to simply set it all aside. When you read through Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, on through the prophets, he said, I didn't come along to say, yep, you could just discard that now and, and move on. Now, I haven't come to abolish that. I have come to fulfill it. 
Now, we understand what it means that Jesus fulfilled the prophets. We know all the predictions. He's God with us, Emmanuel. He's the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. But when we think of fulfilling the law, that's a little harder. We think he, well, he kept the law, and of course he did. But that's not how Matthew uses the word fulfill. It's not simply that he obeyed. Every time, every other place that Matthew uses the word fulfill, it is in fulfillment of a prophetic something. I think that's what Jesus means here. He uses it the same way in chapter 11. He says, the law and the prophets prophesied until John, the Baptist. So there is something about the entire Old Testament, law and prophets, that predicted Jesus. And he's now saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who's come to fulfill everything. I am the standard of righteousness. And what I say is what everything prior to me was pointing to. I am the Messiah. I am God incarnate. I am the king. I am the lawgiver par excellence. You have heard these things, but I say to you. Not simply discarding the past, but taking it all up into his person as the fulfillment and saying, now, listen to me. Very similar to the story you know when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and Elijah is there representing prophets and Moses is there representing the law and pretty soon they're gone and the voice out of heaven, the Father says, listen to him, my son Jesus. The law and the prophets did their job and pointed to Christ and now he is here. And so he says to these Jewish disciples, listen to me, I am the Son coming to give full revelation. So what does he say? Verse 21, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the courts. Quoting right out of the Ten Commandments, and then we read through the Old Testament and we see that the Jewish elders, the leaders of the community would sit at the city gates and when someone was charged with murder, they would be brought before these, these uh, leaders, and the leaders would try them, and if there were two or three witnesses, then they would convict them, and that person would be executed. If you unintentionally killed someone, then you could flee to the city of refuge and find safety there because it was unintentional. That's the old covenant law. That's the law. Jesus says, you've heard this, but I say to you, I, the Messiah, I, the king, I, the fulfillment of God's righteousness, here's what I say to you. Not simply those who commit homicide are liable, but everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The Old Covenant law had restrictions on actions. And there was a command, the tenth one, that said, do not covet. But how do you legislate the things of the heart? Lots of times we hide those things from other human beings. You may be having all kinds of sin in here, but you might be able to bottle it up at some point. But God looks at the heart. And the oaks of righteousness in the kingdom of heaven are not only seeking to avoid homicide, but anger at a brother. This is not a lower standard than the old covenant law. This is a much higher standard. Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, 
or blockhead or numbskull. Any of those would fit the uh, Aramaic word raka. He shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Literally, it's the Valley of Hinnon. This was when Josiah reformed the Jewish people, and they were committing great acts of wickedness. They were offering their children to Moloch, and Josiah came and cleaned house. And he did it partially by creating this fire in the south, south of Jerusalem where they took all the refuse and all the idols and things and the bodies of criminals they would drag out there. And it became kind of legendary for perpetually burning. And this is why Jesus and other disciples grabbed that image, what we call hell, this everlasting fire where the wicked go and where the worthless things go. He says, if you call your brother a fool, you are guilty enough to be tossed into that fire. And everyone who has siblings in the home are going, oh, no. <laughs> I'm guilty. My kids, well, I won't use an example today. You can infer. This is pretty hard. This is hard. Now, we need to qualify a couple things. There is a place for anger. We know the story of Jesus walking into the temple area and he hurled over the money changing tables. He was mad. He was furious, in fact. Was he violating his own command? No. If you read through Galatians, the Apostle Paul calls the Galatian people fools. And James does it. And Jesus himself, on the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, oh, foolish men and slow of heart. But what's different about those circumstances and what Jesus is talking about, none of these guys are calling someone a fool or being angry because there's a personal offense in the relationship. They are zealous for the truth of God. There's a place to get animated. There's a place to be angry at sin and deception and lies and the things that people are doing to destroy God's truth. But that's not personal so much as it is defending the truth of God. God's angry with the wicked, and there's a place for his people to be angry with the wicked. But what Jesus is talking about here is someone has offended you, and now you're reacting in anger, and you're thinking in your head, you say with your words, not just a, a joking kind of, again, that sibling rivalry, whatever, but you mean it. You're good for nothing. I'm so angry at you. I think you're worthless. You are a fool. Basically saying, without using the words, I hate you, I detest you. Jesus says someone with that attitude is just as unrighteous as the person who commits murder. Jesus' brother James picks up on this. He was called James the Just. He had a reputation in the early church as being committed to righteousness and very scrupulous. But he also understood the heart issues. At one point, he asked this question. Go ahead and put that up, Sophie. This is from James chapter 4. What is the source 
of quarrels and conflicts among you. Anybody have conflicts and quarrels, anybody? Ever in your whole life? Last week? What's the source? That's a great question. We, well, if that guy would be different, if she would be different, right? That's not what James says. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? It's not the other guy. It's not her. It's me. That's the source. Why are you in conflict? You lust and do not have. I'm not talking about sexual lust here. This is just a word that means intense passion. You want something and that person is not doing it right. That person is not giving it to you. You're not getting your way. And notice his language. And so, you commit now, obviously, he's not talking about homicide here, right? No. He's not saying you're actually going around and killing people. I think his response would be a little different. But in your heart, in your anger, in your passions, you're murdering them. You're violating the commands of Jesus. He goes on to say, a person who's like this is friends with the world. That's how the world acts. That's what the world does. That's not what oaks of righteousness are all about. Humble yourselves. Make peace with those who are opposed to you. And let God handle it. I think he's remembering the words of his brother here. So what do we do with this? Jesus tells us, how to handle this. Verse 23 back in Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, so you're there as a Jew, and you are submitting to the law of God. God says, I want you on a regular basis to bring offerings, to bring animal sacrifices, bring goats, bring turtle doves, bring bulls, whatever it is, whatever the occasion requires. You are there in the inner sanctum or in the, in the holy place, and you have uh, prepared your animal, and you are saying, God, I'm submitting to your law. I'm bringing this of my wealth and, and my animals, and I'm here presenting it to you. You're there at the altar, and there remember how angry you are at your brother. It's not what it says. It's not what it says. Very interesting. He doesn't say you remember you're angry. He says you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Isn't that interesting? He says if you are angry in your heart, you are guilty and as an illustration of what to do about it, he switches around. Now, when you think, if, if you remember that your brother's angry with you, go make peace. Leave your offerings there. This is, again, a command of God to, to bring your tithes and offerings and your sacrifices. 
But in the midst of obedience there, walk away from that and go first, be reconciled with your brother, and then come back and fulfill the duty according to the law. One of the things the last nine months has taught me is I have some work to do in this area. I've had to confess and repent of this, realizing that over the last 20 years or so of ministry, that has not been my first instinct when I know that someone has something against me. And I'm thinking through this this summer and thinking about following up Dwight and through the Sermon on the Mount and of course, this is the first one, right? Lord, how do I develop that kind of heart? So that when I remember, when I'm aware that somebody has something against me, I go. It's a high priority. In fact, in this illustration, it's the highest priority. Because again, presenting offerings at the altar is a pretty high priority for the Jew under the law. Jesus says, leave it there. And go talk to your brother. This is a friend. This is someone you're close to. Not just a, a biological brother. This is someone that you're friends with. And go and see if you can be reconcil reconciled. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is a high priority for King Jesus. And I have not always done this well. How about you? sit here today knowing that a brother or sister has something against you? What does an oak of righteousness do with that knowledge? You go. And you seek reconciliation. Because that's what King Jesus asks. Then he gives another illustration, another piece of instruction that's very, very practical. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law. While you are with him on the way, presumably on the way to court, so someone else, again, has something against you so much so, so that they're taking you to court. Doesn't say he's a friend. He says make friends. So this may or may not be somebody in the church. But he says, make friends quickly. Why? So that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into the prison. Truly, I say to you, you will not come out of there until you've paid the last cent. Very practical advice. It's, it's similar to when Jesus says, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Gentle, we, we get that part. But what does the wise as serpents mean? I think it means serpents have a tendency to know when to pull back. They're crawling around in the rocks and they hear something, they see something, and they jut in. They know, oh, if I stay out here, I'm going to get my head stepped on. Oh, they're not all that wise. I've stepped on a few. <laughs> but that's what I think he means, know when to pull back out of harm's way. If you know someone has something against you and they're taking you to court, go to them and see if you can reconcile before you get there because if you don't, it may end up that you get thrown into prison and you're going to be suffering the consequences of that animosity until you've paid it all. 
The stakes are high eternally with Jesus and spiritually, and the stakes are high temporally in everyday life. I think the church is going to have to learn this in the upcoming days with those outside the church. If I read the reports accurately, we have at least a couple of our school districts here in Colorado Springs that have banned critical race theory. Praise the Lord. Critical theory is bad. What is it trying to accomplish? It is trying to raise hostility and animosity among people. That's its objective. He wants us to identify ourselves according to these subgroups, these intersectional groups that they have defined for us, and pit one against another and create all kinds of friction in the world. And the world is following right in line. There is so much hostility and animosity in our culture right now. All being driven by this ideology. And of course, as Christians, we have to reject that. But what is happening in the church? Not necessarily our church, but the broader church? Lots of fighting. Lots of hostility over this issue. And you got all the other things too. Vaccines or not, you know, if you're for or against vaccines and masking, all of that. And the world wants us to fight over that. And they want to pick a fight with us. Now there's a place to stand our ground on truth. And it might be that there is a place that we've reached or are about to reach where we do have to be more uh, steadfast against the world. Be the, the, the light and the salt that Dwight was talking about. And say, there is a bigger thing going on here in our culture that we have to stand against because the stakes are high. So in no way am I suggesting that we back down when it's necessary to stand up for truth. But let's be wise as serpents in this and realize when it comes to one-on-one -on -one engagements with neighbors, co-workers, if you create a hostile relationship with there and they come against you and our culture, the legal system is on their side by and large, you may find yourself losing your job, eventually suffering in prison, jail, something, being fined. Wisdom would say, if I can make peace without compromising truth, I should do that. We are to be peacemakers. Not peace at all costs. But strive to be peacemakers. This is hard. It's so much easier, I think, than just to have the command, don't commit murder. You know what? I've never killed anybody. <laughs> Thanks, Martha. Vote of confidence there, I think. I've never really been tempted to kill anybody. I shouldn't say really. I've never been tempted to kill anybody. I don't foresee that in my future. That's an easy one for me to obey. My guess is it's pretty easy for you to obey. But it's much harder to not be angry, to think poorly of others because I don't like them because they did something to offend me. It's harder to know in wisdom, where do I stand firm on these principles and when am I picking an unnecessary fight? This all requires God's wisdom. That's why we need to talk through these things in community and get the input of others because no one of us has all of the answers to these problems. And we're all in different scenarios and different, different aspects of this. We need the body of Christ to work through these things 
and hold each other accountable and give input and to stand firm. Because again, as we do stand up against these ideologies that are trying to destroy the church, we need one another to be bold. Because it gets hard. And if Dwight's prophecy is true, it's going to get harder. Do you want to put that in the category of prophecy or just prediction? Both. Okay, you heard it. We got a record. We need each other to walk through these things. Beloved, the Lord Jesus Christ is making this church and his church oaks of righteousness. And this is what righteousness looks like. We fight against that temptation to anger. Paul says it be angry, but do not sin. You can't always shut down the emotional response of anger, but what do you do with that? Don't sin. Don't allow yourself to go to where you're now thinking hateful thoughts and saying hateful words to somebody. Oaks of righteousness seek peace and reconciliation and brotherly love. How can we possibly do this? Well, we have the Spirit of God. What's the first thing listed in the fruit of the Spirit? Thank you, somebody. Love. First one he mentions. How do we do this? We keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. The example of all of this. Yes, Jesus, we read it in, in the Psalms, or Isaiah 61. He's going to bring vengeance against his enemies. But he also came to bring friendship with his enemies. While we were still enemies, he died on the cross for us. In the face of people putting him on the cross unjustly, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He set the standard. So we look to him. We keep our eyes focused on him. If he can stand there and be mistreated and not lash out in anger, maybe we can do by his grace and power. Keep focused on the one who came and said, I am. Righteousness incarnate, and here's what I expect of my people. Let's pray. Father, I think I can speak for all of us in saying there's not a one of us in this room that has done this perfectly, nor do we think we can in our own strength. We're thankful for your grace and kindness thankful for the power of the Holy Spirit that is transforming us into the image of your, your Son. We're thankful for the example we see in scriptures, the example we see in saints of old and even saints of today. Lord, plant us deep. May we individually and corporately grow into a massive oak that displays your splendor and glory as we strive to be righteous, gracious, loving for your glory, for our good we ask it.